Hello and welcome to the future of work and the investment landscape, the podcast that looks at all things work in the future, brought to you by Wanda for their blog, Chaos and Rocket Fuel. Today, Wanda, CEO Claire Haydar and myself, Doug Folks, are joined by Heyman Capital Management's founder and CIO, Kyle Bass. Hi, Kyle. How are you? I'm great. Glad to be here. Excellent. Kyle, thank you so much for taking time out of your very, very busy schedule to be here with us today. Um, Digging right into things, Kyle, you know, whenever you and I have conversations that I always try to dig into the details because I'm just so fascinated with the work that you're doing. From my perspective, I consider you to be much more of an investigator rather than an investor. And the reason why I say that is because so much of your work involves tracing the money to unearth truth. How did you come to do what you do today? Well, Claire, I'm excited to be here with you too. And, and the, the answer to that is a, is a very long answer, but um, uh, let's just say um, early on in my career, I really had a thing for investigative journalism. Uh, I wasn't one to uh, just subscribe to newspapers, read the news and move on. Uh, I was very, I'm very interested in long form, deep, uh, you know, deep investigative journalism, and, and, and unearthing those truths and, and also bringing justice to the world and, and bringing those truths into the forefront. And as you know, in today's day and age, everything is so polarized and you must consider every source of every bit of data uh, that you read. Things I used to trust almost completely, now my, uh, my initial take is, is uh, always to distrust everything I'm reading and figure out um, how to parse through you know, truth from, uh, from editorial slant. Uh, early on, I started, uh, you know, I guess, uh, trying to understand um, how, and, and this was more financially speaking, how um, special situations evolved. And what I mean by special situations are uh, bankruptcies, spinoffs, frauds, uh, you know, corporate actions, murders, uh, things like that. And, and that's always been where I focused in my career uh, from the moment I got out of undergrad. Carl, your work spans such a broad swath of of major issues, Um, everything from the opioid crisis through to the atrocities of the Chinese government and many other really, really serious global issues. Would you say that injustice is one of the core values that drives your work? That is actually a really good question, Claire. Um, I think that when when you dedicate yourself to, you know, let's just say following what gets our markets or individual companies into either difficult situations or great situations. And you, and you try to, and you try to peel back the layers of the onion uh, Mm -hmm. that, that get it there. You know, I've just been incredibly interested all along in, you know, the micro universe, i.e. company level, corporate company level data are things that I focused on early on in my career. And that was from call it 1992 uh, until 2007, and when you got to uh, when you got to the global financial crisis, sovereigns had to back their banking systems, regardless of the fact that their banks were all in, insolvent. And mm. many it, it ended up breaking many of the sovereigns. If you remember, um, mm. you know, Iceland, Ireland, which Claire you're very familiar with, um, yeah, Cyprus, Cyprus, Greece. What ended up happening in many of those places is when this financial crisis hit. They realized that their banking systems were much larger than their economic output and and or macroprudentially they weren't paying attention 
Uh, and then when the banks collapsed, tracking those bad private assets to public balance sheets became somewhat of an obsession to me. And, and then that opened the world to this, to this trying to understand the way the world's banking systems work. And when you try to understand the economics of the world, invariably it takes you to the politics and then, yeah. the, injusti- then the injustices of the politics and the the pros and cons of maybe Marxist-Leninist totalitarian communism versus good old-fashioned uh, Western democracy. And that's where we stand today. But along the way, there have been many permutations of both. And um, the more time you spend understanding the, the plumbing of the systems, it takes you to what drives the plumbing and, and invariably it leads you to, you know, call it a grand strategy of politics. I just love what you've just said about, you know, peeling the onion back through those layers in terms of, you know, looking at the micro, which then leads you to that macro, which eventually ultimately leads you to the politics and then therefore the injustices of the politics. We're a company that that's all about the future of work. And during this current global situation that we're facing, work is completely changing shape. And that's why I believe it's so important for leaders and executives who are navigating this landscape to start and basically follow that recipe that you've just laid out there, which is that look at the micro factors, you know, then move on to the macro and then look at the the political landscape that underpins that. Because by understanding those three layers and the drivers within them, we will better be able to prepare ourselves for the future of work so yeah just just really happy that that's your thinking and that that's what's coming out here because that's exactly why you know your view on the future of work is so critical yeah Carl I'm going to jump in here and ask you to actually bring it down to the micro level if you like I mean if you the future of work has taken a massive turn in the last few months what do you think the landscape for an average employed person is going to look like in say the next 24 months through to say the next five years it is invariable that we will see, I believe, um, permanent reductions in headcount, number one. Uh, I think that this, uh, the Wuhan virus has basically been a, a polarizing force on, uh, on the leadership and the, the uh, rank and file employees of many organizations. Uh, those of us that run organizations have realized that it's been a, a forced realization of um, who the superstars are and then who the people in your organization are that actually uh, you can easily do without. And I know that that sounds particularly harsh, but I can tell you that that's true across the board. So there'll be, there'll be a certain amount of people that are unemployed today that will be rehired at their call it current rate of salary and, and benefits. Uh, I think that'll probably end up being being about 40% of the people that are unemployed uh, will be hired without uh, without any blood or change. I think then you're going to see maybe another uh, 30% that will be called, uh, recalled at a reduced rate of uh, benefits and, uh, and salary. And then I actually think there's going to be, unfortunately, there's going to be a, a permanently either unemployed or sector of the workforce that's going to have to be retrained. Uh, into becoming more productive. So I think that this crisis is going to uh, bring change within organizations that way and then external to the organization itself. I think it's going to change the manner in which um, some commercial real estate is valued. I would not want to be the owner of office buildings 
based upon cap rates from 2019 coming into 2020, because um, I think, I don't know about you guys, but I think you're going to see, you will see more people working from home. I think you're going to see um, valuations of various real estate assets change pretty dramatically over the next, call it two or three years. Kyle, you've, you've stated something very interesting there, which, which I'd like to segue to, which is you've broken it down to where you believe, you know, that about 40% of the unemployed population right now will be rehired at the current rate. There's going to be the 30% that will be rehired at a reduced rate, and then that remaining 30% will most likely have to be retrained. That has a significant impact on any organization, particularly I'm focusing in on that retrained piece, that 30% retrained piece there. Talk to me a little bit more around what do you think are going to be the significant areas where that retraining needs to happen? I believe that it's really tough to teach an old dog a new trick. And I, when, I, when I say that, um, I think these uh, retraining programs, um, and, and what I mean by that is, is people that have jobs that are either going to be automated out or are no longer needed given the, the dynamism of the workforce and the manner in which people have adapted to work on, let's say, Slack or some other messaging system like Slack, I think there are going to be much, much fewer um, executive assistants and receptionists. And I think those people are going to have to learn how to do something that uh, is vitally important to these organizations, i.e., whether it's code, whether it's get into legal and compliance, whether it's do education or, or professional training. I think people are going to have to learn how to adapt and kind of move up the ladder. What we've learned is there is a way uh, to really reduce and eliminate positions that otherwise uh, have been around for the last you know, 30, 40 years. The other thing that this opens up is the divide of income. Um, the popular opinion on the streets is that the income divide is growing. I'd like to hear from you based on the numbers that you track so closely. What is the data really telling us? I actually think the more important and the more divisive issue is the wealth gap. It's so much different than the income gap. And so I actually think the central bank's policy is the key um, agitant or friction creator uh, for all of the all of the inequities that you see in the world today and all of the protests, when you see central banks uh, try to eliminate business cycles, how many rich people do you know that were less rich than they are today in 2006 at the top of the market, right? Before the 2008 financial crisis, what central banks have done taking rates to zero and expanding their balance sheets uh, into the trillions uh, across the G7 uh, has created this, this giant, it's just expanded the wealth gap. The, the haves have so much more because they're levered all of these assets. The mm -hmm. have-nots continue to have not. And the middle class actually has less upward mobility because they can't afford homes because median income is not moving as fast as home prices. And so I think you see the unrest in Hong Kong, the unrest that you're seeing across the U.S., you know, uh, they like to call it, you know, I don't think it's that racial. I actually think it's, it's, a, it's a difference in wealth. This is such a critical 
core concept um, for people to really understand because this it is directly linked to work and how people should be thinking about their employment. If you were to break what you've just explained down to us as if you were explaining it to a five-year-old, could you do that? You would just say that uh, the Wizard of Oz uh, that happens to be uh, running the biggest bank in the country uh, makes sure that uh, you know most businesses stay open and that people have access to borrowing money, you know, whenever they want. And um, the price of everything is going up uh, very quickly. Uh, and your income is not, the money you bring home is not going up that much. So, you know, uh, as each year goes by, we're gonna have to, you know, have, have fewer nicer things. And mom and dad are gonna have to work a lot harder. It's a tough subject to, to boil down to a, a five-year-old because you know, central banking is something that's, uh, it's, it's a concept that's hard to explain to a 25-year-old mm-hmm. that, that, that's not well-versed in economics. I like your Wizard of Oz explanation because it is simple enough to understand this is the broken piece. And ultimately, the problem that you're describing here is not something that an individual can actually control. It penalizes savers, right, because they take interest rates to zero and negative. Um, it penalizes people that have worked their whole lives and, and are expecting uh, their companies to provide them their pension to retire on. Mm. Uh, and it affects people that already have savings in the bank because, as we all know, if you're getting no return on your savings, but the price of hamburgers and hot dogs and steaks and barbecue and uh, anything you consume, movies, I mean, mm. Just think about when you go to restaurants and you go to movies. I remember when spending $100 for a dinner for two at a restaurant was like your anniversary dinner once a year. Yeah. And you, yeah. know, you, went back, you went back to eating peanut, peanut butter and jelly the next day to save up. And today, a dinner for two at a decent restaurant is $100. I think every single person listening understands that, like, what's the price of a new car, Claire? Have you ever seen the price of a new car that you like go down over time? Never. Yeah. Right. And this is the insidious nature because by the way, the government prints these things. So we went back and we looked at um, 30 years of how the U S government calculates the consumer price index. And we looked at the auto component very specifically. Mm -hmm. And when you look, you know, call it 30 years ago, the average car price in the U S was around uh, $13,500. When you look at today, the average car price of a new car today is somewhere around 42000 or $41,000. So you're talking about a tripling of the average car price in a 30-year period. If car prices have more than tripled in 30 years, how much of that do you think made it in over a 30-year period into the consumer price index? Six or seven percent made it in out of 300. Do you know why? Because they, they do this thing called chain lending. So they'll take the car today at 42000 and the government will say, well, you know, uh, you have electric windows. The car 30 years ago had roll-down windows. So if you take out, if we need to compare apples to apples, you're going to have to remove the cost and the equipment for the electric windows. And then you say, wow, you have this heads-up display of all of this functionality in your dashboard. Well, back then it was an analog dashboard. So if you were to put in an analog dashboard, what would it cost today? And so they literally take apart the car uh, virtually and they, and they say, well, if it was just a car, just like it was back then, then it's only 6% more expensive. But in reality, when you get your checkbook out, you don't have those options. The chain-weighted concept 
allows the government to actually not record inflation. And why that's important to the government is many of the government's uh, adjustments, you, you probably heard of this concept of COLA, cost of living adjustments. Mm -hmm. um, many of the government payments that they owe people have COLA adjustments in them that are indexed to, to the government's determination of inflation. So what I'm telling you uh, is the inmate is actually running the asylum. If you look at the CPI, there's one big deflationary uh, component where they actually record significant price declines. Mm. And it's in, the it's in the price and cost of data. Carla, I'd just like to bring it back to, to work again. Um, you mentioned it a little bit earlier about remote work. It's just definitely the new thing. From your lens, what are the top five precautions and considerations that senior leaders in organizations should be thinking about? I'm a poor leader of large organizations. I have a small organization and I'm much better at that. Uh, but it, it, you know, one of, one of the concepts that, that I've discussed with my contemporaries that some who run much larger organizations, for anyone that says people that work at home are more productive than, than someone that works at an office, uh, I think that is a fallacy. You and I both know, that, or, or the three of us know, that um, anyone working at home has many more distractions than they have at work. If you were to think about the efficient frontier, 100% being a someone that's 100% productive at work minus you know a 30-minute break here and a 40-minute lunch break or whatever, whatever where they have uh, scheduled time uh, off during the day. It's my view that people that that uh, prior to the Wuhan virus, uh, I would say people are were probably at work even. On average, we're probably 60 to 70 percent productive. Uh, the friction at home has probably gone from 30 to 40 to 50 to 60. Um, and, mm -hmm. and so that's, mater that's materially worse. So when I think about how do, we, how do we combat that, there are a lot of tech gadgets out there that enable, uh, you know, Orwellian tech, ga tech gadgets out there that will allow employers to make sure their employees um, are productive working hard and paying attention. And so whether that's facial recognition cameras and uh, keyboards that need to stay active and phone you know, monitoring, I know that all sounds terrible to all of us, but if we're going to, into this mode working at home, you need to have someone uh, you know, overseeing both quality and quantity control of, of your workers. And I, I think those are the things that as we take that kind of uh, large step, I think that, that uh, those kinds of Orwellian things uh, that, that are required to monitor folks are going to have to be put in place. Kyle, is this a personal opinion that you have, or do you have actual data sets that you're looking at that backs up what you're saying? You know, this is not my area of expertise at all. This is uh, in talking with people that run firms that have, you know, 10 to 500 people. So those are actually mm -hmm. considered small firms. So I'm not even talking mm. about you know, Fortune Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 based companies. Um, uh, but everyone's trying, all of the business leadership is trying to grapple with this, this, this call it question slash problem. In my case, I spend almost all of my time, um, you know, dealing with uh, the investments and, and moving the firm forward from the investing perspective. So, you know, I'm giving you the just, pure opinion and, and, and pure nothing opinion, backing yeah. it up from a data, data perspective. The interesting thing, you know, to comment on, on what you said there, this is actually an area where I would, you know, disagree with you on based on our own experience of, of running a virtual company. But 
coming back to the point that you made about the fact that organizations are really going to be grappling with who their superstar employees are. I think that's where we're going to see this interesting mix start coming to the fore. Yeah. Where we're going to grapple with these type of concepts is I think that we can't just make a blanket statement across organizations to say that the numbers that you've hypothesized about apply across the org. I think, you know, like you see in most things in life, there's a distribution where you've got your outlier performers. And I think that's where, you know, organizations are really going to start focusing because I think the productivity numbers from those superstar employees are going to look very different to the rest of the data set. I actually might agree with you that when you talk about the high, the high functioning employees that you have and partners that you have, um, I think we can all turn off the world and focus on our work and what we need to focus on. The highest skilled and the, and the people that are running firms, I, I don't think you're going to see any, any loss of productivity whatsoever, but I mm. do think you'll see it, you'll see it in, in the middle of the, the organization. Coming back to that political level, I think we've, you know, we've looked at the micro, we've, we've dug into that piece, we've definitely looked at some of the macro components. If we can move on to that political piece of the onion that we're peeling back, what are some of the legislative reforms that you suggest, you know, countries should be looking at and seriously considering given this big, big disruption that we're currently living through? When I think about, uh, you know, my area of expertise is at the time, uh, I call it in the last eight or nine years, has been uh, the U.S.-China relationship, the U.S.-Hong Kong relationship, the China-Hong Kong relationship. And so, you know, we're talking, today we're talking about a period of time in which all of those relationships are at, call it their most severe they're in the most severe flux that they've been in in the last, you know, 40 years. When you ask legislative reforms, I, I t- I'll take you a step back and just say, because you have this fundamental forces acting against one another, you have, you have fundamentally incompatible political systems. Mm. You have a, a totalitarian Marxist-Leninist communism with Chinese characteristics, and then you have Western democracy. One has, doesn't care about human rights whatsoever. In fact, they will trample human rights uh, uh, to achieve the goals of the state. And the other is, has a fundamental basis in uh, a bill of rights and inalienable rights that each individual citizen in the United States and Europe and, you know, must, must have uh, as, as a fundamental basic uh, right of life. And those systems, in my view, are completely incompatible. And yet we've been trying to trade uh, where, where fundamentally, um, from a systemic perspective, there is no common ground. There is no agreement on what's mm-hmm. right and wrong. From my perspective, when we think about legislating things, the simple basic legislation that's got to be pushed through, and, and again, in financial markets, is we've got to level the playing field right now. Chinese companies in the United States don't have to adhere to the exact same securities laws as U.S. companies do. They get a pass. We gave them a pass in 2013. I think we need to level the playing field from, from the perspective of, of corporate interests. But, but that goes another step further, Claire. Why on earth do Western democracies interface with a villain like China, who, who has between one and three million people uh, in, in concentration camps, simply because of their religious preference. I thought our, our world said never again after World yeah. War II. It's absolutely insane 
that we're entering into, you know, that Wall Street continues to invest in countries like this um, by turning a blind eye to um, human rights abuses. That in itself is a big head scratcher for me. So when I think about policy, I think we need to completely rewrite policy and require our trading partners to adhere to some sort of a basic norm of human rights, of climate. We continue to interface with some of the worst climate offenders uh, on the planet today. And, and, and it's in the interest of trying to you know, just earn another buck or another shekel. And this is where that, that interplay between the micro and the macro and the political becomes so important again, because the whole culture that we try and breed um, in Western democracies, not only the US, but other democracies is, you know, basic principles of if you're in a relationship with somebody, there has to be some shared value set. If, if you're, you know, hiring people into a company, there needs to be some type of culture fit. You know, th those are the things yeah. that we're passing at the micro micro level yet we're not doing it at the at the macro in many cases and at the political level as you say no and, it, and it's, it's almost taboo to talk about you've seen the narrative change because the communists are playing their hands so poorly they're playing such a heavy hand whether it's north korea literally blowing up the the relations center between uh north korea and south korea just a couple of days ago uh, mm. or whether it's or whether it's china abrogating a deal that they signed in 1984 with Great Britain in 1992 with the U.S. And the 1984 agreements filed and ratified at the U.N. And yet China mm. just says, you know what? It's actually not useful for them anymore. So they're just going to um, come over the top of Hong Kong. That kind of abrogation of international agreements, international responsibilities for that matter, um, is going to forever change uh, the governance and the relationship between our two countries and really Western democracy, those countries' relationships with, with the totalitarian systems of let's call it Russia or Venezuela or China or Cuba, um, I think those relationships are going to be rewritten over the next um, few years. And I think, it's, I think that will happen regardless of political leadership in the US or Europe. Uh, I, think, I think the pattern and the path is set uh, because we all, I think you put it perfectly there, you have to have a shared value set. And, uh, you know, that shared value set can't be money uh, and profits uh, at the cost of everything else. I think we need to bring morality back into the equation. Carl, we're actually coming towards the end of our time together. And just listening to you there, I mean, legislation is obviously something you could talk about passionately for for many more hours, I'm sure. Um, I'd just like to bring things just back down for my last question, which is just around the, the macro level again. What do you think society's blind spots are when, when we're considering the future of work? When I think about the biggest blind spot that the world has, it's, it's simply greed. And it's, it's allowing greed to, to um, supersede any of the rest of your, of your own value system. Kyle, to wrap up our session today, as you know, I can keep talking for hours and hours on so many of these topics with you, but to bring things to an end, um, you're a deep thinker, you're a prolific reader, and as I learned today, which I didn't know before, is that you truly have a passion for investigative journalism, which very much makes total sense because of your curious mind. What would you say people should be paying attention to right now? And are there specific sources that you could recommend? 
to everybody listening in. I don't read the newspaper every day. I don't have any particular routine. What I found, and, and maybe to my wife's chagrin, uh, about, about two or three years ago, um, I actually found Twitter. And um, with Twitter, um, I've learned throughout my years that I trust very specific people. Uh, and uh, and, I, and you know, whether they're journalists, academics, um, politicians, there, there are some people I trust. And then if you look at who I follow, you know, look, I follow President Trump. Uh, it, that's not because um, I fully trust him or that I voted for him. It's simply because I also need to see some of the propaganda and rhetoric that's out there. I follow the Chinese propaganda outlets uh, because they're the official mouthpieces of the CCP. So I, I still follow people that are playing games, but I also follow very specific people that I have a lot of trust and faith in. Um, and so I think Twitter is kind of a, a newspaper or TV for intellectuals. I don't use it for um, leisure at all. I use it for kind of create an information funnel uh, that, um, that I use that, that comes to me that is the way I want to see it uh, and, and read it. And so when I think about um, you know, what, what some of the best books are out there, Today, they're books that I'm very interested in. The 100-Year Marathon by Michael Pillsbury. Now, I think Michael Pillsbury is actually a double agent and working for the Chinese government, but he wrote a really good piece on the history of the relationship. Kyle, final question, just based on something you said. You said that you follow very specific people that you trust. Could you give us a framework in terms of how you define trust and how you recognize it in somebody? You know, I have a lot of friends in, the, in various places, again, whether they're academics, think tanks, or in the government. Um, you know, I, if I interface with them on a personal basis like you, and I say, Eric, you know, who do you think the best person in a specific technology is or someone that writes about it? And I bet right off the top of your head, you would know one or two names. Mm. You know, it's, it's just like that. Kyle, thank you so much for your time today. It's, it's been really, really good to you have this hour-long conversation with you. Thank you for taking time out. Thank you, Claire. Thanks, Doug. And uh, I look forward to, to talking with you guys in the future. Our time is up, Carl. Thank you for your time and global insights to the future of work. Claire, again, thank you for, for being here, for setting everything up. From us at Chaos and Rocket Fuel, thanks for listening. Keep safe and be sure to pop back soon. Mm-hmm.